Well, hello again. It's, uh, thank you guys so much for being here uh, today. This is uh, it's amazing. And um, today we're, we're really kind of wrapping up, preparing ourselves for Christmas Eve. And we are looking, we've looked at uh, hope and we've looked at unexpected hope, unexpected peace. Uh, and this morning we're gonna look at unexpected joy. And we can make like this a little wreath if you want to, put a little bow on it, some little holly. Right, so if you're doodling, you can do this. And um, we're gonna look at this uh, in, in a little bit different way than perhaps what you've expected. If you remember a few years ago, I taught y'all um, a gesture of joy. Do you remember this? Anybody remember this? Okay, like several of you guys do, a lot of you don't. So there's a context for this. Uh, this, by the way, is sort of the uh, international symbol for joy. Uh, it's not really, I just made it up. But if you can just practice this, you take, it's really important how you do this, you take two fists and you put them together, even everybody in Leland do this. You take two fists, you put them together, and then you bounce them together and you explode like with spirit fingers. So it's like joy, and you say joy. So let's all practice it together real quick, okay? Ready, here we go. Joy. Oh, come on, I want everybody doing this. Ready, one more time, ready? Joy, right, perfect. And so you're already like, ha ha, that feels better. So there, let, me, let me tell you where this came from. Um, there's uh, something in Wilmington and uh, that, is a, it's a very a hot ticket, it's hard to get, um, and it's called Christmas at Airly, right? And it's, it's Airly Gardens, the big gardens here, and every Christmas they decorate with a bunch of trees and lights, and people go and you get hot chocolate, and you bundle up and you walk through, uh, and you look at all the lights, and it's absolutely spectacular, and it's beautiful, and you have to buy the tickets by the carload. So however many people you can pile in a car, that's how many people get to go. And so every year on November the 1st, uh, these tickets go on sale and about 15 minutes later, they're completely sold out. And then the Facebook scalping game begins. Everybody's trying to get tickets for early. And this event is rain or shine, which is a very important detail to note. Uh, so this particular year, it's been about, I don't know how many years ago, we were going with some friends and uh, it was, one of the great things about Wilmington normally is we get these crisp December nights. So it's not freezing cold, but it's like 40s and 50s, and so just cold enough to wear a sweater and drink hot chocolate, but you're not miserable. Well, on this particular night, I think it was like a Thursday night, we had tickets to go, and the weather was horrible. It was monsooning, windy, rain, and it was freezing cold. And so we were going, ironically, we have tickets tonight. <clears throat> so we'll see how this goes. So the other note is that I'm married to sunshine. My wife is like literally just every day you wake up, it's just like as soon as she's up, it's like sunshine. And I'm like, oh my God. So sometimes it's, it's, it's really great most of the time, right? Um, but we were, we were going to, the, we get there and it's, we were like, we're going. We all pile in the car, we're going. We're going to get to early gardens. We get out, there's like nine or 10 of us. It is pouring out rain. We get through the first little thing, it's soaking wet. And Julie said, we're gonna have a great time tonight. And then she does this, she goes, it's gonna be joy. And so she made us all do this. We're all in the car, you know, kind of this pep talk before we get out. No complaining, no misery, it's gonna be joy. And so we're all kind of wrestling through this and we get there and of course we're soaking wet. And every time someone started to complain or want to talk about how miserable it was, we just looked at each other and said, joy. And it just turned out to be this thing and then we inflicted on everybody else. But here's what happens whenever you say, because some of you are sitting here, you go, joy. Even what happens, like when you hear Julie says this, my first response is you kind of do this, yeah, right, right? This kind of eye roll, this isn't gonna do any good. You kind of have this idea, which really leads me to this idea of how we think about or how we need to think about joy 
That its opposite isn't sadness, it isn't grief, it isn't some emotional response. It's a way of seeing things. And the opposite is this idea that this isn't really going to matter. And the opposite is cynicism. When we fail to find joy, we are likely to grow cynical. Even when someone does this, you're going to do the eye roll and say, this will never work. And the question is, is there something that has happened or something that's been made available to us that allows this to be a reality, something that's accessible regardless of our circumstances? Now think in our minds, if you've grown up in the church and you believe in God and believe in Jesus, you know that's true. But it's sort of a thought in your head. It's something you would hold. It's something you believe in, but perhaps haven't experienced it or aren't experiencing it now. So how do we think about this? A lot of us, when we're in our pursuit of joy, we're waiting on something to happen. Oh, when this happens, then I'll be joyful. When I get out of this season, then I'll find a joy. And what the shepherds announced, right? This is the, the angels announced to the shepherds. This is one of the famous scenes uh, from the Christmas stories in Luke chapter two, uh, starting in verse 10. It says, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I bring you good news of great joy. For unto us is born this day in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, I don't have time, but this is is a very provocative announcement from the angels to the shepherds. This is in a time where the allegiance was given to Caesar and he was Lord. And here's this announcement that says there's good news. Something has happened. And what has happened was there is a savior and it is Christ the Lord. He's setting up an alternative kingdom. Another way in which for us to live. Something else has been made available. And we start thinking about joy. This isn't about something that is going to happen. This is joy because something has happened. And it's us learning how to receive that and trust that and live in that. This is precisely how Jesus would teach us when he was talking to his disciples in John chapter uh, 13, the, when he, it's at the last supper with his disciples and he's washing their feet. And then um, he launches into what's the largest sort of segment of Jesus's teachings found in the scriptures, John uh, thir- uh, 14 and 15 and 16, 17, those, those four or five chapters. And right there, he talks about things like this. This we picked up from last week, right? He says, I do not leave you peace as the world leaves. Remember this last, last week? I do not leave you peace as the world gives, but I give you a different kind of peace. And we talked about this last week. And then he goes on and he says, remain in me and I'll remain in you, right? Abide in me and I'll abide in you. If you stay connected to me, I will, you know, my life will flow out of you. A, a branch, right, that remains in the vine, it will bear much fruit. That's the metaphor that he uses. And then right in the middle of that section, he says this, these things I have spoken to you. Not so you'll be good Christians. These things I have spoken to you, why? So that my joy may be in you. And what's the promise? That your joy might be full. That something might happen. In, and I, this, this is about his presence. This is about God with us. This is about Emmanuel. This is us learning how to live and remain in him, to abide in him and he in us. That's all the language that's given to us here. So how does this happen? Psalm chapter 16, 11, this, you know, what Jesus would say would, be, would, be, would reverberate as echoes from what they had grown up hearing 
from the psalmist. When he, Psalm 16 is one of my favorite psalms. This is about the boundary lines falling in pleasant places, about the Lord being our portion and giving us a good inheritance. And at the end of this chapter, he says this, that you make known to me the path of life, a way of living. And he says this, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures. And it, there's this fullness of joy that his presence brings. When I was thinking about what Julie did to us, this sort of Miyagi trick that she played, what she did is actually very important because she was reorienting us. It's easy to think about the rain and the cold and the misery when you're in front of something that's beautiful. It's easy to get distracted or consumed with how I feel and what's happening to me and the condition or circumstances. And when she would do this, it would reorient us. It was cultivating something. We were looking for something. We were trying to say what we feel, what's happening in our actual experience, there's something else going on that we need eyes to see. And this would remind us that there was an available goodness to it. This is where we have to, to get to in order to understand what joy is. And how do we think about joy? We often think about, again, as something that we're gonna get to when something happens. It's almost largely circumstantial. You know what we think about this? Um, <clears throat> joy is a kind of emotion. I think we think of it like this, but I, it, I think it's more. And I wanna try to give a picture of that today. Um, we often try to make distinctions between joy and happiness. Um, so that joy is like this thing that doesn't depend on circumstances and happiness is when you got a new car. And I, I, I don't think you can extract them that far from each other. There is something about our happiness, this, this emotional well-being that we long for as humans and this promise of joy that are deeply connected and need to remain so. So joy isn't indifferent to your emotions. It isn't indifferent to them. There's, there's a part of this that actually happens in us. It's actually intricately connected to our emotional life, to our mental worlds. But it isn't driven by how we feel about the things that are happening around us. And that's a really important distinction. But rather, it's fueled by a different source, something that's deeper. Um, it's described as a fruit in the Bible. A joy is described uh, as being available, especially when our circumstances are anything but joyful. Paul would write in his letters, and this is throughout, and this is just one place, where he's writing to one of his uh, congregations in the Middle East uh, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, in this introductory remarks, he says this, for you welcome, he's giving thanks for them, for you welcomed the message, the gospel, the good news, in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy that was what? Given to you by the Holy Spirit. So this comes from somewhere else. We say, well, how do, I, how do I get this? That's what we're going to be exploring. That's what we've, we've got to learn how to see this. Joy is a grace. When it, when it talks about this, it says that it, it talks about it as, as being a gift. It's the, the word joy is literally uh, connected to the word grace. It's given to us and it's something therein that we receive. If joy is given, our posture is to receive it. This joy is a kind of gladness. It's a kind of delight. They're related to one another. And it enters into us as we receive it and it affects us profoundly. 
If you do this enough to your kids or you do this enough to your spouse or you do this enough tonight when we're at Airly Gardens, at some point something's gonna happen inside of you that's gonna let your heart catch up with this posture that you're trying to find. This is, this is why we have to cultivate this kind of joy. It's a grace, it comes and it comes into us and it affects us profoundly. But it's also described as a fruit. This is how Galatians 5 describes it. It's a fruit of God's Spirit. It's something that comes out of us because of God's presence in us. It runs into us and then outward from us. Like we, we think of fruit as sort of these, these this, like a scorecard, who has the most fruit. But that's, that's the, you're on the wrong end of the spectrum, right? You're on the wrong end of that equation. Fruit is what is born out of our lives and fruit comes naturally because of where you're planted and because of what you are. Apple trees don't have to work to produce apples, right? They're not going, oh, they're not producing orange. They're apple trees, so of course they produce apples. And they do so because whatever is happening in the ground flows through them and comes out of them. This source comes through them and then out of them. And the same thing is true for this fruit that we're looking for, for joy. And fruit always does at least two things. I think it really does two things. Number one is it does add beauty to the world around it. When you see trees in bloom, it's a beautiful thing, but that fruit isn't just for that. That fruit nourishes other people. That the fruit of our lives is to add beauty to the world, is to add something, to contribute something to the world, something good to the world, and it's also to nourish others. And somehow Julie's joy infected us, even in the miserable pouring down freezing cold rain. So this, this is how this is supposed to work. So. What is joy? Like, how do we think about this? If it's not quite an emotion, what is it? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot, trying to give it words, and that's part of, I guess, my task, is to try and find a way to describe this in a way that makes it accessible to us. So we're not just trying to do wishful thinking to make ourselves feel better. And so I thought of this as, as a posture. What's happening is we are posturing ourselves, we're positioning ourselves for something to happen to us. And so the way I define joy is that joy is a posture by which we receive the available goodness of God. Joy is a posture by which we receive the available goodness of God. Something is available around us and we do this, we reorient ourselves that what is happening right in front of us or what is happening to us or what we are experiencing in this moment is not everything. We reorient ourselves to see something beyond. And this is what joy is and what joy does. It allows us to receive that which is given. So I'm gonna mention two things here. Number one is that this requires us, when we think about a posture, it requires two things. Number one, a posture requires what it is that we see. And this sounds obvious, but, but stay with me. When I think about what you see, I want you to think about what you observe. What do you observe in the world around you? What, what gets your attention? What holds your attention most often? What is your mind continually consumed with most, most often? What, is, what, what gets your attention the easiest? Like what's the thing that makes you go, oh, that's awesome, or whatever it is, what makes it do that that quick? That's a very hard thing for us to be honest about, isn't it? Because a lot of the things that get our attention, right, aren't just 
They're not, they're not pure and holy. It's a lot of things that cause us to worry or cause us to indulge or cause us to see other people differently, right? It, it produces or gives us some sense of cynicism. What is it that you see? This is your worldview. Is your worldview more optimistic and hopeful or is your worldview more cynical and pessimistic? Like are you becoming distrusting of systems and organizations and other people? Like what is your view? This is what it requires us to see and you just gotta do a pressure test on your own life. This is why, because when you're out there and it's all cold and rainy and miserable, somebody needs to do this to you and say, hey, there's something else you could be paying attention to. For those who have eyes to hear, Jesus would often introduce his teaching in this way, for those with ears to hear and eyes to see. And the second part, and this is just gonna take us a lifetime to work out, is what you believe. And I'm not just talking about a list of doctrines that you would say yes to. I'm talking about things that you trust in enough to arrange your life around them. Like a lot of people believe it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, but we ain't given unless we got all of our stuff we need to already be blessed, right? It's what do you trust enough to do something about? That's what I'm talking about. So we talk about God's goodness. It's a doctrinal belief. I believe in the goodness of God. But to actually trust that enough, to see and to stay and to move, like what does that look like? That's what I'm talking about. So these two things, when it comes to our posture, it's, it's these two things, to be able to receive the available goodness of God. We all believe that it's there. How does this actually happen or occur? What Jesus is described as, is that this, 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 his relationship to joy, and he tells us that my joy is gonna be in you and your joy is gonna be full. In Hebrews, they write about this, this motive of Jesus' sort of enduring quality of joy. And it goes like this, the passage begins, it follows this list of heroes in the Christian faith, all whom suffered and struggled. That's, that's the condition. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, let us take off every encumbrance and throw aside every sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith, putting our eyes on Him. And then here's how it's described in verse two. He says, for who, who for the joy that is set before Him, did what? Endured the cross, endured the cross, right? Here's why this gets so critical um, for us. Because I think about, when I used to think about this as a kid or when I was younger, when I said, for the joy set before him, I'm thinking, man, Jesus is going to the cross and he sees something better that allows him to endure the cross. And that's where his motivation comes from. Like maybe it's like the end of a workout when I'm gonna get like these endorphin rush so I can like do five more push-ups or run another mile or whatever it is. And we sort of think about it like that. And then what I would usually go to is what was this joy that Jesus saw? And in my mind, the only thing I had was being in heaven, wearing a choir robe and singing Amazing Grace for 10,000 years, which I just couldn't get on board with. I don't know if that's, if you ever struggle with that, I'm like, like amazing grace and all, but 10,000 years. And, but here's, here's what we're learning, how Jesus describes this. What, he, what was he looking for? Like what was the joy that was set before him? 
We looked at this last week. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and his peace will never, ever end. That something is available to us right, that makes us, that we have to look for and see and believe and enter in. And how do we enter into this? We enter into this by learning how to trust, learning how to do something. The, the problem a lot of us face is that the older we get, right, resilient joy is a good thing, but it's not just sort of suck it up and deal with it. It's not just rose-colored, you know, optimism that allows us to pretend that things are better than they are. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not the denial of hard things, of grief or real things, sadness that happens to us. But it's a kind of force that runs underneath all of those things that allows us to continue, right? Cynicism is sort of a giving up of hope. Right? That's how you just sort of give up. You give up. And part of the challenge for us, especially as we get older, our, what we know, our knowledge of things, our understanding of things, right, just sort of governs everything else. And we don't believe things because we don't understand them. And I tell people all the time, this is the conversation I've had so many times over the last few weeks here, is that you do not have to understand something completely in order to believe it, right? Most of you use a cell phone and you have no idea how it works or you've got on a plane when you were nine and you have no idea, how does this big chunk of metal stay in the sky? You didn't understand it, but you trusted it enough to be in it, to be on it, to move with it. And this is what I'm talking about, we have to, we, we have to but as we get older, we tend to depend on our own understanding because we can predict things. We know how things are gonna turn out. In fact, the evidence in our world would actually lead us to believe that we probably have good reason to be cynical about things. So this doesn't, this doesn't, undermine that. Well, actually it does undermine it, but it doesn't, it doesn't fail to acknowledge it, but it runs underneath it and it does something else. And this is where I want for us to consider because what happens to us when we grow cynical is we do, and if you remember last week, we talked about this idea, wait, this is a quick line, that this peace that God gives is different from the peace of the world, that the peace of the world, as soon as you get it, you have to protect it and hold on to it or else it might be gone. And so then we arrange our lives in this way. And cynicism sort of acts the same way. This, this opposite journey away from joy of growing cynical says, well, what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna protect myself. I'm gonna withhold parts of my life. I'm gonna calculate. I'm going to um, try and ensure that nothing threatens these things so that I can preserve at least what I have. And what happens is cynicism sort of breeds this. And the more you withhold, the more distrusting you become of the world, other people, and all the things that are happening. And this really is the posture and the activity of distrust, of distrust. So if you take that and you think about this, what do you suppose is gonna go down here? If this is the activity of trust, what do you think joy becomes? The activity of what? Of trust. 
another place where Paul is writing. He says this. He says, maybe this is in his letter to the Romans. Right at the end of this section, he's about to conclude the book and give a bunch of thank yous. He says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as what? As you trust, as you trust in him so that you may overflow with the hope of the power of the Holy Spirit. And what he says is he gives us this sort of idea, this, this place or this way. And he says, may this joy be yours and be available as you trust. And what it seems like is that trust gives way to joy. That somehow this is what's in it. God with us is this relational dynamic. The, the way relationships work, the strength of relationships is always measured by trust. And what he's saying to us is this is available to us for God's presence to be the fullness of our joy. We have to learn how to trust Him in and through whatever we are experiencing or enduring. This is the posture that makes us available. When I thought about this, because this is so important, to cultivate this. We learned this, this was the light bulb for me over the summer in our Summer of Delight uh, Sabbath that we did this past summer, Summer of Delight. And we think about delighting ourselves in the Lord and He'll give us the desires of our heart. Right? We've heard that, that verse. And if you were here over the summer, we explored this idea that a lot of us see this as this is the way you do things. If I delight myself in the Lord, He's gonna give me the car that I've been looking for, the house or the wife or the spouse or whatever it is I've been looking for. He's gonna give me what I actually want. And what we don't realize is that when we set our affections on something, when we delight ourselves in something, it actually forms and shapes those wants more consistently with the object that we are delighting in. This is true of human beings, right? If you delight yourself in Taylor Swift, right, you are, you are going to constantly be inundated by her. And all these things are gonna to begin to inform, inform and transform and form your own affections. If you, if you desire 80s music, well, what you're gonna want is more 80s music. Whatever it is that you are setting your sights on are gonna to begin to form your wants. This is how we work. And so God mercifully says, delight yourself in the Lord and I will form those desires into the kind of desires that you're actually built for, into the kind of desires that you actually want. And the same thing is true for joy as a posture. Joy is a formative emotion, it's a formative thing. It shapes us, it acts on us to reorient us to what might be available so we can see something different. The problem that a lot of us experience is we are asking God to do something about what we already see instead of asking Him to help us see something else. And this is, this is, this is what joy does for us. Who for the joy set before Him allowed Him to continue and to not grow cynical, and to not give up, and to not stop short. If there's anything that I want for my life is I do not want to give up, and I do not want to stop short of what God is asking, and what God has available for me. And this requires a tenacity and a faithfulness of learning how to trust Him, especially when it doesn't seem like it's going to work, especially in those moments. So I want to kind of conclude with this thought or this idea, because what it seems is that trust is what builds joy. For us to learn to trust Him builds joy. This allows us to see. And there's this really pointed moment. Uh, it's, it's actually a, a verse out of the book of Nehemiah that was, which our students spent a good chunk of time in Nehemiah this past year, our college students. Um, there's a single verse in there that's often 
um, just pulled out. People, you know, post it, tweet it, make memes about it. And it's, it's a beautiful verse because it talks about what God's joy does for us. But the context of it is even more powerful to me, especially when we think about this. And what happens is, so Nehemiah is written as the Israelites are returning from exile. They have been conquered um, by Babylon um, and they are, by Babylon, and they are returning to Israel to build and rebuild the city and eventually rebuild the temple. And so this, um, they're there and they've got the wall rebuilt and all these people are gathered and, and most of the people that are gathered are all the ones who are probably responsible for sort of God's judgment. The, the reason this all happens is because people had just failed to honor God. They failed to pay attention to God. They just did their own thing. This all happens, it all falls apart. And now they're all come back together as they've been called and gathered back and they're reading God's word. It says that Ezra is up and he's reading the law. So he's reading all of the, the, the old covenant. And as, as he's reading this, the people begin to weep and they're, 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 they, they despair. And I was like, why would they be doing that? And I, I think the reason is, I mean, certainly it's because of probably the condition of things, but it's also probably their responsibility in the condition of things. This is really important for a lot of us who come back to church because you come back to church and, and every time you hear something good, you immediately try to select out why this isn't good for you as some way to punish yourself for what you have caused or what you have created or the things that you have done. Do, do we do this? As we talked about last week, Jesus did not come to bring God's punishment. He came to establish God's peace. To the government that's on his shoulders, there's a greatness to it and a peace that will not end that is available to us now. And we're learning how to step into this. And so you're here and you're like, I'm back. And you hear good things and God's grace and the good news of God's gospel. And you're like, well, I need to do this better. I need to do, and, that's, and, and, and this is exactly what I think the condition would have been of these folks. They, they feel bad for what they've done. And they're at this intersecting moment where something has been done for them. And this is what he says in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse 10. He says, the day, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, when you are downtrodden and despair and ashamed and guilty, what do you need to do in order to not be like that when someone says, hey, I see you differently. Hey, there's a different way. Hey, this is for you. Hey, this is not who you are, right? What do you need to do? You need to trust them. Do not grieve. Do not grieve about where you've been or what you've done or be ashamed. I think that's probably the better way. Do not, do not sit in that in this particular moment because something has been done that is good tidings of great joy. That shall be for all people. Those who've blown it, for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? One who saves and he is the king upon the, whose uh, shoulders this government rests. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And the greatness of this government and the peace of this government shall have no end. And that's the goodness that is available to us. So here's what's staggering. We think about this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The strength to do what? To promise to do better? The strength to do what? The strength to, to get your act together, to grin and bear it? Nope. I think 
The joy of the Lord is our strength to continue and to trust, to stay in it, and to not stop short until God continues his faithful formation in your heart, in my heart, in our hearts, as he has promised to do. In learning to trust, this is the unexpected part, we find the fullness of joy. And interestingly enough, that it is that fullness of joy that gives us strength to trust. How would it feel to no longer be in this cycle, but instead to learn to live in this one? Need someone to go, hey, hey. Father, this good news of great joy has come. This government with enduring greatness and peace has come. Um, Would you give us eyes to see it? We see all the chaos, chaos of our government. We see all the chaos of what unfolds and all the different things around us. And it gives us great reason for cynicism. But God, your news gives us great reason for great joy. Would you help us to see it? And then out of seeing that, would you awaken something in our hearts that strengthens us to trust that it's actually possible? Father, we ask you, I wish there were three easy steps we could do to apply this, but will we just put our hands together and declare and posture ourselves to receive what you have made available to us? And then in doing so, would you awaken our hearts and deepen our trust as you continue to reveal more and more and more and more of who you are and what you long to do um, as a part of this rule and governments, governance that we are a part of. And so, Father, I ask you to do that. I believe that's what you want for each of us as individuals and what you want for us as a church. And I pray all of this in the name of your, of your son, Jesus, who is our king. Amen.